The only purpose of the Talking Space podcast is to educate and to inform. The views expressed in this program are the opinions, experiences, and conclusions of the guests. They do not represent the official policy or position of the Space Tweep Society as a whole, NASA, any other space agency, company, contractor, or affiliate. We choose to go to the moon. Thank you, Todd Cielo, for putting that all together for us. And uh, thank you again, Russ Dale, for uh, giving us your talents as far as an announcer is concerned. Thanks for volunteering and being part of the show. Welcome to Talking Space number 230 for the week of Labor Day weekend, 2010. My name is Gene McCulka, and uh, with me tonight is the usual suspects. Good evening, Gina Hurley. Good evening, Gene. How are you this evening? Pretty darn good. Good. Thank you very much. Uh, Mark Ratterman, good evening to you, sir. Hello from quiet North Florida. (laughs) And hello from very, very noisy uh, northwestern New Jersey. Uh, And last but definitely not least, uh, good evening to you, sir. Sorry, Rosenstein. How are you doing this this evening? I feel like I should be saying something quite profound like Mark usually does when he speaks, so kumquat. In other words, good evening, everybody. <laughs> Sawyer, you get your first A of the school year on that one. If okay, anybody right. asks, you got it. Thank you, Mark. I'll second that. <laughs> Alrighty, we've got a, a big week that uh, that we're putting to to, uh, to rest here. So uh, why don't we go over uh, the headlines for the week? First one was a rather interesting little uh, little tidbit from NASA here on Thursday. Uh, September 3rd, NASA deployed its Global Hawk UAV over over a hurricane for the very first time. Uh, Based in Southern California, the vehicle made the trip to the Atlantic to study a hurricane, in this case, Hurricane Earl. The drone has a 30-hour flight range and was able to stay directly over the storm and take a look at images and data for far longer than any satellite or Hurricane Hunter aircraft could. Comments, everyone? I think it's an interesting addition. I've uh, seen one of the Hurricane Hunters uh, visited someplace that I've worked or, or been and got to walk on board and talk to the crew. And um, that's that's a that's a tough aircraft and a and a pretty uh, I think a pretty brave crew to do what they do. And it seems like having a, uh, a remotely piloted you know uh, aircraft with no crew. Offers some uh, some you know some great safety uh, considerations that you don't get. Uh, just for just for trivia, they've also got other types of aircraft that they use, and and I believe it was this week they had both a, um, a Hurricane Hunter a C-130 and the uh, Global Hawk that flew over the storm. But they've also got a P-3 Orion that's instrumented for uh, Hurricane Hunter use, and NOAA has a Gulfstream G-4. And uh, the uh, the family's just gotten a little bit bigger with this first 
first shot with a global hawk and uh, great use of some resources that you know we never would have thought of until until uh, NASA and NOAA come up with it. Yeah, I was looking at the article there, Mark, and uh, apparently this uh, little experiment with Global Hawk uh, was conducted with the DC-8 in concert. And uh, I'm wondering, uh, do you folks see Global Hawk as replacing Hurricane Hunter aircraft or augmenting it, augmenting the ability? I really see it as, you know, augmenting in a supplementary source because... No matter what, a computer can't do the job of a person. I mean, it can do similar tasks, but it cannot be a person. And a person's going to give you a different eye view than a camera is. So as much as I think that it's a great addition to the lineup and a lot safer, I still think you can't just get rid of the human aspect. I'd be interested in learning more about exactly what they got uh, off of each aircraft. You know, the DC-8 versus the... Global Hawk versus uh, what they typically get with C-130s. I know they can, uh, the C-130s, when they fly into a storm, they drop uh, instrument packages into the storm, and it gives them wind data as the package descends through the storm. It gives them winds and pressures and temperatures and, you know, quite a bit of stuff that's important to the weather guys. And I'm curious what the uh, what the Global Hawk does for them. Don't know. Haven't Haven't seen enough about it yet. That's a very good, uh, very good uh, observation there, Mark. I like weather. I think weather's cool. You sure hate to think of the extremes that produce the the cyclones and hurricanes and you know this severe weather that's such a tragedy sometimes with uh, with impacts that it has on our coastal cities. But uh, it it sure is fascinating. I know there's some weather people that I see on Twitter that uh, that get excited at a tornado and uh, I'm sure that you know the more information the scientists can get the happier they are alrighty if uh, there are no other thoughts on uh, on Global Hawk we'll move on to the uh, to this week's shuttle news the space shuttle discovery gets ready to make its journey over to the vehicle assembly building for mating onto the its external tank and SRB comp- SRB combination for the last time uh, Discovery has been nestled in uh, OPF number three since its return from STS-131 and is expected to make its way over to the vehicle assembly building starting at 7 a.m. on September 8th. Uh, the final shuttle Discovery, the final stack for shuttle Discovery is expected to make its way to the pad um, on, I believe, September 21st, according, this is according to Spaceflight Now. And with a uh, dress rehearsal expected somewhere in mid-October. And also this week, um, it appears that a crew could be named for the yet-to-be-approved STS-135 mission, according to an article also from Spaceflight Now, dated uh, September 2nd. Um, The crew of four is expected to be named from a pool of about 11 of uh, current shuttle astronauts that the uh, Space Shuttle Program Office has in mind. Um, and along with all this, some lighthearted news from the, uh, from the shuttle area. Uh, 150 lucky Twitter users were named to uh, the NASA tweet-up um, for STS-133. They were uh, selected on September 1st from a pool of about 3,000 entrants. 
the NASA tweet-up will happen on October 31st through November 1st, which is the launch day of STS-133. Anybody have any thoughts with reference to all that? Yeah, just a uh, an optimistic, pessimistic note. I hope Discovery does better than last flight, where they had the problems with their KU band antenna, and you know it it gave them some inconveniences for being able to downlink and and do their uh, their post landing inspection of the of the aircraft. They actually did it while docked to the ISS, and hope they don't have any inconveniences like that. I hope this is a smooth, record-setting, trouble-free flight. Yeah, Mark, I recall the uh, the KU antenna issue on Discovery. Um, I think that was uh, that was addressed on the ground as part of its preparation. But it would be interesting to see if uh, if indeed that uh, that that's all fixed up right now. I know that was a big headache in trying to get uh, uh, you know, photographs of the underside of the vehicle using the OBSS or the uh, Order Boom Sensor System, which goes ahead. And for those of you who do not know what we're talking about. Uh, the orbiter boom uh, sensor system is a, like a small wand that, or a large wand that's that's attached to the robotic arm on the uh, on the shuttle, and it is designed to go ahead and check the underside of the orbiter for any type of uh, uh, possible issues. Uh, if there's any tile or any severe damage over there, the OBSS is designed to go ahead and analyze and find that. Um, they had some really serious issues because of the KU getting the KU antenna, which is the main transmission antenna on the orbiter. Um, as a result of that, we didn't, you know, they didn't get that data quickly enough, and we didn't get a lot of the pretty pictures that we usually get of Earth below uh, from Discovery on that mission. So it, it, it turned out to be a little bit of a headache for uh, the folks on the ground, but they managed to work through. Oh, this is a little... Uh maybe a correction and a little trivia that probably nobody wants to hear, but I remember reading when they when they did the analysis of the equipment and what the problem was after the discovery landed, that they found it was similar to a problem that occurred on one of its previous flights, but it was a different component in one of the electronic circuits that are part of that whole KU band system. And, uh, you know, that's one of the unpredictable things of electronics. I mean, you can have something work for great amounts of time, you know, hundreds of hours, thousands of hours and cycles and however you want to uh, rate it and and then just have out of the blue a, a component fail and that, that's it, that's all she wrote. But uh, just one of those things. Now, I had one more question just regarding the crew selection. They would all be veterans, correct? I would think so. Um you know, you don't want to go ahead and select a rookie for, for the last flight. Oh, on, on uh, 133? Uh, no, no 135. About 135. Oh, sorry. Sorry, sorry. No, I just changed the subject at random, so. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> yeah, I bet they would be, because that's what you've got for 133 and 4 is veteran crews. Right, but, and also, why a crew of 4? Is it to maximize payload capacity, or is there any reason why 4 out of any other number? Because the shuttle can hold seven. Yes, there is a reason for four. In the event, now, I believe the order assigned for this flight is Atlantis. Correct. Um, right. Now, now there, there is a, uh, the reason is, is we don't have a rescue capability. Not, not, the other two orbiters would already sort of begin their mothballing process. So we also, we do not have another external tank. 
So we do not have the ability to go in the event that Atlantis becomes crippled. We don't have the event to go. We don't have another vehicle to go back and go get get the crew. So what would happen was, uh, and I believe that the thought process is here, that the crew of STS-135 would rotate out on Soyuz. And uh, since Soyuz does have a limited capability in bringing people back, I think it's limited, it's about three people, um, you would go ahead and uh, bring the crew of uh, STS-135 back through Soyuz. And they want to make sure they can do that. And that's the reason why for the floor. Gotcha. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, but Soyuz can only fit three people, right? So I would assume... And are these four astronauts trained on landing in a Soyuz, or somehow they would have to rotate and live on the space station longer until they could have multiple Soyuzes bring them home, correct? Yeah, and that's probably also going to make a... Uh, uh, might actually even play a role in the crew selection, too. Maybe a former expedition um, member that has come back on a Soyuz. That would be something to think about because you've got extra people on board the ISS. You've got limited uh, consumables up there, and uh, you've got you know crew that's not necessarily. Although there are two crew, I believe, on 133 that have been uh, expedition crew members on the ISS, so they would have familiarization to you know to go to work. But uh, you know, getting that many people down that'd be a challenge. What? How many Soyuz do you have to launch with? Two up, three down, or one up and three down. That's that's a lot of Soyuz launches that uh, are already dedicated to certain crews and and tasks that are planned. Perhaps some of the extra um, payload that 135 would bring to the space station would be astronaut consumables, just in case of the the event that they are abandoned on um, the ISS. And obviously, those consumables won't go to waste. The current astronauts could always use them. And if nothing else, it's going to be good practice when we turn over to Soyuz-only transport to the ISS. What I find interesting is that we're kind of sort of discussing a flight that really hasn't been approved yet. I know, uh, I I believe there's part of this, um, where SDS-135 is mentioned in, I think, both... Uh, versions of the House and Senate bill, but it hasn't really been approved just yet. So I'm wondering, does the the very fact that we're actually talking about naming a crew for SDS-135 say that that flight is pretty much a shoo-in? I think we also had a debate a while back ago, too, on this particular flight, and I think I made the rationale that because we had even that pump failure we suffered uh, uh, in July and fixed in August says that indeed I think maybe we've got to make one more flight here because now you're operating on the spare tire and you want to go ahead and and replace that spare tire so there's probably other other things too that uh, from a logistics standpoint the space station office would like to have up there and since we don't have the shuttle or we will not have the shuttle for very long so I'm, I'm thinking that, indeed, this thing's going to go. And now we have an interesting little story coming out of the International Space Station. Um, there was a report um, from a, uh, a Russian source on uh, 
on September 2nd that the Russian cosmonauts are longing for hot showers on board the International Space Station. This was also repeated on the Space Daily blog. A team of Russian cosmonauts working at the Russian segment of the International Space Station are apparently unhappy with the absence of hot water showers on board, a Russian cosmonaut said, on, said this past Thursday. The U.S. segment on the International Space Station apparently does have a shower cabin that was delivered by the shuttle Endeavour in 2008. Um, there are wipes on there are wipes and towels on board instead instead of a shower, and it's not easy to do without a shower for about six months. Besides, it uh, turned out that uh, even if the uh, the crew does go ahead and use the towels, they're they're not only damp but cold, and they're extraordinarily uncomfortable. Um, any thoughts as far as just trying to help our uh, our Russians, our Russian uh, folks out here? Besides this being our fun story of the day, uh, when I was at the Intrepid listening to T.J. Kramer talk, he said that most of the showers that he did were actually he quoted them as pretty much sponge baths. He the U.S. segment doesn't really use the shower that much, which I find interesting. Especially when you think that the Russians probably would have thought of this having uh, had a shower station on Mir before. So I'm, I don't know whether it's a good complaint or just a quit your whining complaint. It may turn out to be a stop whining complaint because there's really not a whole lot I don't think that could be done at this point. Unless they add a new module to the station. And how are they going to bring that up? The only way that they can do it is either on 135, if it does go through, or on a proton rocket. Yeah, and my bet is for a proton rocket, because I I just don't see a module being scurried into service by the time 135 is ready. Right, and that's more more money for them, just for a little bit of comfort. It, It just doesn't make sense. Yeah, agreed. I mean, it's 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 a creature comfort. That's the and, equivalent uh, of if you were at home and you had twenty thousand dollars, and you could either redo a bathroom or redo the backyard, and you choose to redo the backyard. Agreed. The best equivalent that I could think of. Yeah, agreed. We'll move right on into the. Uh, some very interesting news out of uh, ATK. Uh, Alliant, Te- Alliant Tech Systems, known as ATK, and NASA had tested a uh, fully developed Ares five-segment solid rocket motor, um, known as the Development Motor 2, uh, in their Utah test facility this past Tuesday. Uh, now, the interesting thing is the future career prospects. This was supposed to be essentially the Ares 1, um, but the future career prospects of this thing are may or may have some kind of role in uh, in the new heavy lift uh, uh, booster that's being designed. Any thoughts on this? Well, you know, on one hand, do you think uh, any kind of a test type, you know, operation is is something uh, that's going to be good and worth doing? But you got to got a question it's it seems like it's a dead-ended system and for it to get used on a heavy lift vehicle they'd pretty much have to design it around this five segment booster and you wonder if that's just not another 
series of compromises that are going to be made versus designing something that would really do a job that needs to be done. Yeah, agreed. I mean, we're there was a, a version uh, which I th- of uh, I think in the uh, uh, fiscal year uh, 2011 NASA budget, I think there's a Senate version that actually dictates what the new heavy lift vehicle should look like, and it actually dictates essentially what appears to be Ares Five. Uh, I'm kind of thinking shouldn't we leave the design of a new heavy lift vehicle up to the engineers and not up to politicians thoughts i say that's the safer bet without a doubt if you leave it up to the professionals not the not the uh politicians that are dealing with it and at the same time it's you're dealing with one of with not one of the most powerful solid rocket booster the NASA's ever tested. And what they're going to use it for is going to basically dictate what the design should be. So I think it's based off of safety and their actual purpose of the vehicle, not just because Congress says so. I think I agree with Sawyer. I think he hit it dead on the head. Yeah, I, I have to agree with him, too, on this one. I mean, the last time we, we, we allowed uh, uh, politics to uh, dictate how to design a vehicle, uh, we did get the space shuttle. Uh, but we got the version of the shuttle that we got and the version of the shuttle that we actually wanted were sort of two different things. Um, initially, we wanted a completely, totally, 100% reusable system. We didn't quite get that. So, um, and for the simple reason that the 100% reusable system would be expensive as anything to go ahead and design and build, but it would just be really, really not all that costly to maintain, whereas the system we got was the exact opposite. The interesting thing about, about this test here, too, was that this was sort of a, a cold test here. Uh, the motor, the, the SRM was cooled down to about maybe 40 degrees, and re- which was a, essentially, I guess, a, a cold test to measure um, solid rocket performance at low temperatures, as well to, as to verify the design requirements with new materials. There was also some objectives, including uh, some data gathering on some motor upgrades and uh, some new insulation and so on. Um, but again... I, I have to wonder where we're going with this. And the uh, the Ares One is indeed, you know, dead for all practical purposes, and we're not even too sure what the new heavy lift vehicle is going to look like. So I'm I'm sort of kind of wondering, is this sort of a zombie program and an offshoot of the of the late great former Constellation program? <laughs> yeah, zombie is probably uh, a good term. Uh, it's sad, but on the on the good side, you know, I read where ATK had 53 design objectives that were measured through more than 760 instruments on the booster, and they say it was the most heavily instrumented solid rocket motor ever, and um, you can't go wrong. You can't go wrong with that. So, Mark, in your estimation, then, are we still learning from this? And can we go ahead and apply what's learned from all these demonstration tests to possibly other other applications? 
Well, talking about learning, uh, can I throw a, a little acronym in and, and see if it uh, see if it starts a kind of an offshoot on this discussion? How about well, OV? How about OV ninety nine? Challenger. Challenger. I just, I just got a chill. Um, yeah. Do 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 uh, do tell, Mark. Seriously. Well, you know, it caught my attention in reading about this demonstration motor two test that they were chilling it to 40 degrees and I thought oh that's interesting that's a pretty cool temperature and uh, I looked back to see about the DM1 test and it said it was done at ambient temperature and I don't I couldn't find a reference to what the weather was that day but I kind of remember seeing the 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 people that were there to watch the test being seems like they were in more shirt sleeves than uh, than often than not but I may be wrong but uh, so anyway, here they chilled the uh, motor down to 40 degrees, and that reminded me of the Space Shuttle Challenger. And of course, that was lost on January 28, 1986. And I took a look back in the uh, in the archives and found a few documents that I'll I'll make quick reference to. One is the uh, I believe you referred to it, Gene, when we were talking earlier, is the Rogers report from the Presidential Commission on the Space Shuttle Challenger accident. That's correct, I, Mark. I got a number of interesting things out of it. Now, people are generally, you know, I, when I hear the word Challenger, I think O-rings. And, you know, I found out some things about O-rings that I didn't know just in looking at this report. They talk about how the temperature of an O-ring affects its operation. And I remember being at the NASA tweet-up, STS-129 uh, launch, and they showed us a sample of the O-ring. And they explained the heaters that are on the, uh, the joints of the SRB and how that was a change that was made to correct the, the problem that caused the, the Challenger accident. Um, but they say that at 75 degrees, you compress an O-ring and it's five times more responsive in returning to its uncompressed shape than is a cold O-ring at 30 degrees. And you think, oh, 75 degrees, 30 degrees, that's not much different. Yeah, but if you're putting 5,000 degrees of uh, burning propellant on the other side of it, and the fact that I, I learned that at engine ignition, those joints at the time of the, the Challenger accident were expected to have some clearances and to have some movement in the joint itself that as pressures increased that it would actually seal the the joint with the o-ring well when you've got an o-ring that isn't the right um, compliancy due to temperature and i read that uh, temperatures were measured on one side of the srb that failed at 28 degrees at, at sometime around launch time was 28 degrees on one side of the joint and on the other side, which was the, the side that the sun was uh, no doubt uh, facing, it was more like 50 degrees. So you got a temperature differential around the joint. Well, here we are with demonstration motor two, where they chilled the whole thing down to 40 degrees and it gave them some good data on how those, I'm sure how those O-rings uh, performed and uh, I'm sure that with the amount of time from 1986 to today, there's been a, a lot of thought put into that. Um, and, and kind of a little diversion into 
uh, risk because we've talked about how averse we are to risk, and and here you know from the history books the at the time the company was the name of the company was Morton Thiokol but became ATK nowadays. They said that each of the launches below 61 degrees prior to Challenger resulted in one or more O-rings showing signs of thermal distress. And thermal distress means partial burn through, charring, and and things that weren't normally seen in other joints, at least to the degree they saw them at at temperatures below 61 degrees on those other launches. Um, on the Challenger launch, there's a possibility of water being in the, they refer to it as the clevis, but I, I can't really quite picture how that whole joint is, but actually found water that was likely to have been frozen at time of launch. And I found a picture on Wikipedia that showed uh, the launch pad and ice conditions on pad 39B at the time of launch, and it <laughs> it's scary. It, it's downright scary. And then I read that... Um, the evening before launch, the ICE team, it says they worked through the night, uh, this is in Wikipedia, uh, removing ICE. And engineers at Rockwell International, the shuttle's prime contractor, still expressed concern. Uh, Rockwell engineers watching the pad from their headquarters in California were horrified when they saw the amount of ICE. They feared that during launch, ICE might be shaken loose and strike the shuttle's thermal protection tiles. Yeah, yeah, it, it could well have, may have, and... Of course, Columbia proved the fragility of of the shuttle's uh, RCC. Is it uh, on the wing to impacts? Uh, I'm almost done. I, another thing, talking about risk, uh, Challenger launched in conditions that were the it it resulted. Well, let me read the the statement from the Presidential Commission report. It said winds aloft caused control actions in the time interval of 32 seconds to 62 seconds into flight that were typical of the largest values experienced on previous missions. And I read uh, also that uh, uh, the wind shear caused the steering systems to be more active than on any previous flight. So here they had a joint that was in failure. They actually feel that from the uh, the pictures and the, the, the high-speed photography taken of the, of the ascent of the shuttle that, um, that the joint somewhat sealed itself. But when it went through this this wind shear, the you know maximum dynamic pressure, you hear that term. But as it went through some wind shear conditions, that I wonder if that didn't violate launch criteria, or if it would today, that uh, that it caused that area that had somewhat sealed the joint to break free, and for it to to have even a more increased uh, blowout. Uh, it's a tragedy. It, it's so doggone sad to to think about that. And yet here, DM2, people may look at that as being a waste of money for a program that's been killed. But if they learn some things, that whether it's used by uh, NASA projects or by commercial space flight, you know, everybody learns and everybody wins. You found an interesting little little note that you want to go ahead and share with us. Uh, that you uh, you uncovered, so please do by all means. Oh, talking about budget. Yes, sir. Um, well, I got to be honest. The the whole the political process and some of the arguments that have have been bouncing around for for months now kind of go over my head as to 
to understand all the complexities and and the and the issues. I mean, I know that jobs are important, and we need to keep the the workers in the program. And I know that on the uh, on the side of a taxpayer, money's not unlimited. So there's got to be some good answers. But I found something else. This was actually an article uh, that I uncovered from a year ago. It was part of a uh, FlightGlobal.com column. And the headline, it says, NASA faces budget-busting crawler way rebuild for Ares. And, of course, this is a year ago. So the Ares program, the Constellation program, rather, had not been canceled. But they're saying that uh, the crawler way and the crawlers themselves are probably not suitable to carry the Ares 5. That they would actually have to redesign the, uh, the crawler. And I found another uh, more recent article in nasaspaceflight.com uh, early in August that uh, made reference to a possible super crawler, a, uh, a, a machine with six sets of tracks, three on each side. And, um, you know, I don't know how the crawler way would, would bear with that. But, uh, you know, it, here we are. You want a heavy lift vehicle. You've got to have a pad, a mobile launch platform, and a crawler, and a, and a road that can handle it. And uh, and apparently this this whole uh, aspect of it wasn't really considered, uh, at least from what I read a year ago, in terms of budget and the Constellation program. So there there. There are things that depend on things that depend on other things that uh, often are not even close to being considered when politicians write checks. And yet, and yet, let me continue. Sorry about this. I'm on a <laughs> roll on. tonight. Go and, on, please. <laughs> and, and yet, who has to make it happen? That's NASA. Their engineers, their program managers, their leadership has to find a way to make happen what they're told to do. And... One of the uh, one of the repercussions of this is a a recent letter that was written by a, a list uh, well a distinguished uh, number of thirty uh, individuals that signed it. They were Nobel laureates, astronauts, uh, former NASA senior officials, and uh, and space boosters. But anyway, they sent a letter to the chairman of the House uh, Science Committee demanding changes to the House Authorization Bill. And uh, this is out of, of what I read from the uh, the Right Stuff blog from the Orlando Sentinel. And they make the statement, and I, I agree with it after reading it. The list of 30 distinguished signatories may well represent one of the most distinguished yet diverse sets of people ever to put forth a unified position on our nation's space program. And uh, they're not asking to to kill anything. They're expressing support for President Obama's plan, but they don't want the technology development, the robotic missions, to suffer at the expense of, uh, for that matter, commercial human spaceflight to suffer at the expense of, uh, you know, of what's mandated by by the House and Senate. Because that's where the money tends to come from, is from those programs. They, uh, 
one more little tidbit and it says in this is in the letter that went to the uh, the chairman of the house science committee it says nasa's aeronautics budget has decreased by 40 percent since 2005 the science budget has been flat or declining the technology programs and other elements in nasa's budget have been reduced by more than 50 percent while we commend the decision to begin reversing cuts to aeronautics and science they're concerned and i'm going to paraphrase that the uh, bill does not substantially address the impacts of years of similar cuts to technology and R&D. And they feel like the techno the, uh, this decline in spending needs to be not only reversed, but in fact in innovative technology development must once again become a high priority at NASA. Uh, in particular, exploration technology program to test demonstrate technologies for human robotic exploration um, it, it goes on. It's an interesting read to look at it, and it, it kind of said a lot to me as to how complicated this is to all of NASA, not just to the human space flight that we, you know, that gets the headlines we focus on so much. Yeah, if you look at the, the, the Senate and the House bills, I believe there's a reduction. I, uh, the initial, um, I think the initial R&D budget was almost a billion dollars. Um, under the Obama uh, plan, the R&D uh, budget, I know I'm uh, under one of these versions, I forget which one, is uh, from either the House or the Senate version, is, is has cut that down to $454 million. So that's a that's that's an extensive cut. Let, let uh, me throw another tidbit at you. It says here, this is in the uh, the letter to the to the House. Says NASA should invest far more in America's launch industry than it invests in Russia's launch industry. The current House Science Committee authorization bill fails this test, sending over $900 million to Russia to buy seats on Soyuz over the next three years, but only putting $450 million into commercial crew during the same period and only allocating $14 million for commercial cargo program. 900 million, 450 million, 14 million. Russia, commercial crew, commercial cargo. What's wrong with this picture? That is surprising. I never would have guessed that number. I mean, I know we're going to be paying a lot eventually in the future once we switch over to Soyuz entirely, but I never would have thought that comparison. It seems so drastic. Yeah, this is the Nobel laureates, uh, former NASA managers and, and NASA astronauts. I am glad they, they got, brought that up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I call that an ouch. Twice as much to Russia as commercial crew during the same period. And supposedly, we want to provide commercial low-Earth orbit access, right? That's the game plan, yeah. And if we're... we're spending more overseas than we are here, then, yeah, I'd, I'd say there's something wrong. All right, if there's no other... Anybody else have any thoughts on this? Yeah. Okay, very well, then we'll move on to our next topic, uh, which is the Solar Probe Plus being, being selected. Apparently on... Um, 
September 2nd, NASA began development of a mission to visit and study the sun closer than ever before. The uh, unprecedented project named Solar Probe Plus, say that 10 times fast, is slated to launch no no earlier than uh, 2018. Um, the probe is about the size of a, of a small car, and it will plunge directly in the, into the sun's atmosphere approximately 4 million miles from our star surface. It will explore a region of that no other spacecraft has ever encountered before. Um, and NASA has selected apparently five science investigators that will unlock the sun's biggest mysteries. Thoughts, folks? Now, here's the weird thing about this is, surprisingly, and this had nothing to do with actually preparing for the show, but uh, just before we started recording tonight on uh, Monday, the 6th of September, I went and watched one of the usual YouTube videos that I do, and they actually brought this up as well as a second topic. And I just... What they said about this is great. It was from what's called the Philip DeFranco Show, and you can find that on uh, YouTube.com slash S-X-E-P-H-I-L. And just a warning, <coughs> do go to that website. It is not safe for work because of language. But the clip that I'm about to play is entirely safe. But it, it was just interesting what he said about it. So it's some interesting space news. NASA is developing a $180 million spacecraft. What is the purpose of this spacecraft, you may ask? Well, person who talks to YouTube videos, NASA is equipping it with a solar wind detector and a beautiful 3D camera that they plan to shoot into the sun. I believe this is to measure the amount of awesome it is for the guy that was like, hey, let's make a $180 million rocket and shoot it into the sun. Oh, by the way, it has a 3D camera. be like the ones from Avatar. What do you think of that? Well, okay, it's going to go ahead and have a 3D camera, and we're going to get up close to our our nearest star, uh, plus get some more data about it that we've never had before. So I don't see the downside. I don't either. And looking at all the comments on the video, at the end, he asked people's opinions on it, and I have not seen one negative comment against it. Everyone's like... It may be a bit pricey, but it's worth it. The science is worth it. And as somebody put, science is priceless. I don't think I could have worded that better. That's good to hear. That is really good to hear. Yeah, here's something I don't recall hearing much, but one of NASA's uh, program scientists says that uh, for the very first time, we'll be able to touch, taste, and smell our sun. Interesting choice of words, and it... uh, really, I guess, uh, gives me a, a little bit of an understanding of how wide the variety of sensors and results are going to be. Could I just give you one warning, though? You may want to blow on it before you taste it because it's a little hot. <laughs> I'll leave that alone. <laughs> hey, at least it's not as bad as last episode's jokes. Yes, exactly. Now, he also actually That's... mentioned another space story, which is surprising because nobody talks about space. But this wasn't even okay. about America. And Gene, do you mind if I let Phil do this intro? By all means, do it. 
This was what he said about our next story. And something that's space-related and kind of interesting is all the while NASA is making a $180 million rocket. Did I mention how much it costs? Denmark is making a $63,000 rocket that they will shoot into space. $63,000. They're having some issues again, but even if this thing turned out to be $200,000, they would be the fourth country to go into space at the fraction of a price. Something I think that's awesome, especially since no interesting news comes out of Denmark other than clogs, hot chicks, and now this. Yeah, not much else comes out of Denmark, but they would be the fourth country. Interesting, huh? Yeah, and I hope, well, there was a, an interesting little uh, discussion about uh, this very topic on, uh, I believe it was the Space Daily blog uh, this week. I may have uh, fired a, a tweet about it on Twitter earlier. Um, that this is this is really a sort of a, a homegrown project, and it's it's it is being done on a shoestring. But in, indeed, it would be it would be really neat to have another na- nation join the uh, join the, uh, the 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 spacefaring nation club. Especially the one thing that surprised me the most is the price: sixty three thousand. A couple of space shuttle flights are in the millions. This is just thousands. I don't know if it's going to work or anything, but it's just the thought of that. If it goes off, it's amazing. Well, in, in that, that respect, sorry, you get what you pay for. You know, I mean, you, you can't compare a shuttle launch with what they're doing over in Denmark. Um, this so it is looks, a, honestly, it looks like a redstone to be perfectly frank looking at an image of it it looks like a mercury redstone rocket well you know you would figure somebody's first reach into into space would would look sort of like you know redstone ish um as far as what what type of payload it may have on it and so on but um again you're you're comparing I, i think it's an unfair comparison um, you're, we're, we, we're talking about lofting human beings in the space. This thing, obviously, is not going to do that. So when you compare the dollar signs and so on, um, I, I don't know. You're, I think it's an apples to oranges comparison. Yeah, definitely. But if they get it off, all the power to them. Oh, definitely. I mean, the more, the more uh, nations involved in spaceflight, I think the better. And uh, uh, I, I wish them all, all success. Uh, I hope everything goes well. Did they mention too when the when the, I, I know they were supposed to launch the, this past week, and I think there was a delay due to some sort of technical glitch. I'm not too sure when the next uh, opportunity will be. All Hopefully, I know is they do uh, have use of their launch facility until September 17th. Okay, so they've got a window of time, um, but. Uh, you know, They're again, not done yet. <laughs> all, nope. So we wish them all the best, and uh, we will follow up with this next week to see if uh, if another attempt was made. All right, uh, that that's it for the news digest this week. The this show marks the first full year we've been doing this podcast. And I'm actually kind of gratified. I'm looking over the body of the work that we've done over the past year. And I'm actually gratified with most of the results. Um, I'm going to throw it out to, uh, to our team here and uh, see if anybody has any words with reference to that. 
I'm actually also very, very happy, and um, Sawyer, you're probably also very, very happy that we have not done what most shows do, which is to go ahead and do you know a yearly retrospective show and take best of clips and all that. I, we talked about that in a production meeting, and we decided not to go ahead and belabor that point with <laughs> with all of you out there that listen to the show. And we decided to spare you that and just offer some thoughts about the first year. And if uh, uh, you have some thoughts, uh, you are listeners about our first year, please do let us know. Uh, the email address is mailbag at talkingspaceonline.com. Or you could uh, drop us a, follow us on Twitter and drop us a, a tweet about uh, any type of suggestions or follow us on Facebook. But, uh, again, I'll throw it out to the rest of the team and uh, if you folks have any thoughts. Okay, Gene. Can't resist. Can't resist. <laughs> Go for it. You know, uh, I was thinking of asking you, well, Gene, what were you doing a year ago? Well, I'll, I'll kind of provide a, uh, a little bit of a ruler, a little bit of a scale to, to turn back the clock to a year ago. It was our first show, and uh, we talked about the controversial combined operational load-bearing external resistance treadmill. <laughs> you know, oh, Colbert. You know, here here we are uh, talking about everything but that kind of stuff today, pretty much. But uh, we got our start on the first show. We talked about Colbert, and one of the very popular topics on at the time on Sunday evenings, a TV show called Defying Gravity. And I'm sure we talked about other stuff, but those were the, the two, uh, at this point, the, the way funnier things that, uh, that we hit on. And I just thought I'd mention that and, and uh, how interesting it's been, how much, uh, how much there's been to learn about NASA and spaceflight. Sorry, what about you? What are your kind of thoughts about uh, this little one-year anniversary here? First off, it's thank you for not making me sort through all of the clips to come up with a uh, best of show, so I don't have to edit that. Oh, that would have been that. Oh, the horror! I was not going to inflict that on you, sir. Definitely yeah, <laughs> one of the four of us would be dead right now. Oh yeah, it would be me most likely. You don't know. Anyway, <laughs> ignoring that, still, it's been a wild, wild ride, and it's just. Thinking back on this, it was, you know, just me a little going into my junior year of high school thinking, you know what, there's this podcast. You know, I saw it mentioned on a website to email this person, Gene. If you want a thousand percent honesty, Gene, at first I thought you were a woman based on the name. Only on this show will I ever say that. (laughs) But ignoring that fact, it was just... You know, I'm like, you know what? Let me try it. Let me get involved, see what it is, and uh, we'll see where it goes from there. Sure enough, I got involved, and it's been one wild, wild ride. It's been a lot of work here on my end after episode three, now considered episode 103, when, Gene, you handed over the hosting and editing reins to me for a bunch of the shows, and I was stuck sitting at home in my room just clicking and listening to the entire shows but I love it. After a while you get used to it and it's really just fun to do and I have to say after an entire year 
I'm amazed to say that I still love doing this whenever I get the chance, and I am so glad that I had the opportunity. So thank you guys for doing this with me, and thank you, the listeners, for keeping us going. And my ramble is now over. <laughs> hey, Gina, I'm just going to throw this to you for a few minutes. What do you? Uh, any thoughts on this? Uh, well... I, I think I kind of came on Talking Space a little bit later, um, maybe a few weeks into it. <clears throat> I remember Eugene approached me on Twitter because I was ranting about how badly the media covered uh, Space News. And you invited me on the show and you said, uh, please come back. And at first I said, this is this is ridiculous. Like, I, I don't have time for this. You know, I've got kids and a job and taking care of a house but you know it's been interesting I've been able to uh, meet all of you and get to know you fairly well um, I've certainly learned a lot and it's been an incredible platform to uh, talk to um, some real notary figures um, you know retired astronauts or uh, other people involved in the thick of NASA on what's going on and other members of the media and it's um you know, it, it's sort of this interesting facet of um, what I do to some people, you know, people in my day job or, um, you know, just my old friends are like, oh, yeah, that's right. You do that sort of uh, space show, don't you? You know, and sort of this um, mysterious uh, part of me, I guess, to most people that know me, which is interesting. But, um, yeah, it's definitely um it's definitely added a whole new dimension to my life the past year. So it's been, it's been very cool. Thank you for the chance. And Gina, thank you. You've, uh, you've, you've contributed a lot to the show. Some of the, the big name guests that we, we've had on this program, we wouldn't have had if it weren't for your intervention. So I, I do appreciate all the hard work you've put in. Um, from my standpoint, uh, this show was born out of frustration uh, back, uh, I guess it was July of, uh, of uh, 2009. I forget what bug had gotten into our bonnet. I think it was because of the launch delays on uh, STS-127 and the way that the media were, were uh, portraying some of those launch delays. And some folks were actually who were not really knowledgeable about such things that, that are covering space uh, were actually asking for waiving of, of launch rules and things like that. Um, and I think that was the, the the final straw that broke the camel's back, and I felt I had to do something, and to just to sort of set the record straight. And that's how sort of this show be, be uh, became into life. And I never in my wildest dreams did I think that we would be doing half of the things that we've done thus far. Um, I couldn't ask for, for a better group of people to, to do it with. All of you are, are complete volunteers. We're all volunteers doing this. And above all, I want to thank uh, everyone who goes ahead and uh, decides that we're worth the download um, or worth their time to listen to on a weekly basis. Uh, without uh, you folks listening out there, we would not be here. And I do appreciate all the encouragement that uh, that various listeners have given me over the years, over the year here. And uh, uh, we've taken your suggestions to heart, and we will be working on them and so on but again thank you thank you dear listener for for thinking us we are worth your time um i'm looking forward to the next year we've got some big plans 
and uh, we've got a few more surprises up our sleeves, so uh, keep listening, folks. Uh, well, I guess that's it. That puts the wraps on uh, on episode uh, uh, 230. So again, folks, thank you all for listening. And Sawyer, if you want to go ahead and do your do your uh, sign off there, please. To think that I never did this until within like the last couple of months, and it's become a catchphrase. <laughs> I didn't even do yes. this on my first episode. It, it certainly is. So the way that I came up with it, it was like, you know, one day I said, you know, have a good night. And I realized it's night when we record it, but not when everyone listens. So I just changed it to this. And that is, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are. <laughs> <laughs>